podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted, the first one ever being recorded live on Discord. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Well, since we're live, I'm not sure if I should swear at you like I normally do at the start of podcasts, and then we start it all again and start recording again. Well, you can if you want. Guy is here, so Guy can take care of any and all issues that we may run into along the way. Such as the issues Liverpool ran into last night. Let's start last night, Carl. We thought Fabio Carvalho was going to get done. The fee was agreed quite late. The medical was done. Personal terms appear to have been done. Do you have any insight or can you share any kind of knowledge on why this deal might not have been completed on time? Uh <laughs> Only that, um, you know, there's this thing called a calendar and it lasts 30 days, sometimes 31 days. And when you wait until the final 60 minutes of it to try and do a deal, it doesn't always happen the way you want it to. I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. Uh, Fulham did seem hesitant to do a deal, but I think common sense prevailed late on. You would have to imagine, though, it does put us in a good position to get this one done in for the summer because... It wasn't going to make any difference to us whether it got done last night or today or next week or next month. Carvalho was going to be loaned back, so we wouldn't have the use of him till next season anyway. So we can now go and, you know, put forward the same terms to Fulham again and say, look, here it is. We'll sign him in the summer. When his contract expires, we'll give you the same amount we're going to give you in January. And that will be that. No tribunal, no nothing. Fulham obviously will retain his uh, registration even after his contract expires because he is a player who's under the age of 23. So it probably just makes sense to go and try and get this wrapped up in the next few days, if possible. It does. I mean, I mean, if we want to be, if we want to play devil's advocate on it, we can suggest a couple of things which might have happened or which could now happen. Um, look at the Luis Diaz deal, for example. We kind of entered the, the the game quite late there as well because someone else had made a move. I wonder whether that was the case again on deadline day. Somebody else sort of tried to make the move for Carvalho and we, we decided, no, let's go for it, let's get it done again. There's that possibility. There's obviously the possibility that now that teams know more or less what Fulham want and what they'll accept and what they think is a good value for them, they could come in and do the same as we have done before and just offer maybe a little bit more or slightly better terms, more favourable payment structure, whatever it is, to get the same deal done for the end of the season. Or there is, of course, from the players' side, maybe the perspective that, I don't know, I don't even know who his agent is, to be perfectly honest, but you can always have the prospect of people in his ear saying, if they'd have wanted you that much, they'd have got it done last week. 
um, and wait and see what comes up now. There's no rush to get it done for his side now either. Uh, and maybe that is one that could come back to, to haunt us a little bit if, if anybody does come in across the next couple of weeks and we're not very, very quick to get it done. Yeah, there does seem to be some suggestion that Borussia Dortmund have interest in him. And obviously there's been two prime examples of English players going there in recent years and, and really kick-starting their careers to a high level with Jaden Sancho and now Jude Bellingham. So that is one possibility. But the fact that the player did seem keen on the deal, and he seemed to be one of the ones that was pushing for the deal to go through in this window, is maybe a good sign for us. Yeah, you'd but again, so. you, you would hope so. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. Hopefully we can get it done, because if we can get that done on top of the other deal we got done, which we will talk about it, it does take away from the list of things that need doing in the summer. Now you'd look at it and say, you get cover in for Trent, a right-footed Costas, whoever that may be, and you bring in one in midfield. Chouameni has been in, been linked. There's clearly interest there. If we could get him in and a backup right back, that's pretty much it, depending on what happens with Sadio, with Bobby, and with Joe Gomez, who could all go in the summer contracts and offers depending. Don't you talk to me about Bobby Firmino leaving I don't think Bobby leaves. I said on today's Daily Red, what I think will happen with the front three is I think Salah will get his contract. I think Firmino will get a new contract, but it will be a shorter one, maybe a two-year add-on, maybe even on reduced terms. And I think Sadio is the one most likely to be sold of the front three because I don't think we'll want to sign all three of them to longer deals moving into their 30s when we've already made one big error on a player in his 30s with a contract that's going to cause us some issues over the next few years. So I do think maybe we'll look at moving one of them on and Sadio would be the one that would have good value. Bobby's value is very hard to pinpoint because is he worth as much to anyone else as he is to us? I don't think he is. So I, I think while internally his market value could be 40 million, externally it might only be 20 million. Yeah, I fully agree. I don't, I don't think that there's much of a sell-on fee for, for Firmino at all. I think his value is inherently linked to this type of team, this type of style of play, uh, what he brings in terms of the, the group as well. Uh, obviously a very popular player within the squad. Uh, I don't really think that there would even be a 20 million market for Firmino, to be honest. Unless, like, like I've said before, I think if there's a team who, I don't know, let's say that Inter Milan, for example, playing two up top and you have one who's slightly deeper, but they've now got Correa for that role. They've got uh, Lautaro still who can play in that role. So I don't really see too many teams around Europe who would get the most out of Firmino mm. that, that can be got. Uh, and certainly not ones that would, with the age, with maybe a drop-off over the last couple of years that they might be looking at as well, and what they'll get out of him over the next couple of years, pay anything more than like 10, 15 million. So for that, I'm all for keeping him, running him into the ground, and just let him play on until he wants to leave, really. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I have recently thought of how much fun he would be in the Atalanta team, because I think that's the type of setup that would suit him, but I would much rather keep him. Um, I think he's his arrival was kind of the first spark of what we see now. Obviously, Klopp's was the big spark, but Bobby was when Bobby Kindling. signed. 
Yes, Bobby was the kindling and Jürgen was the spark. And it all kind of went from there. Um, Bobby was the bright spot in what was a bad summer's recruitment by Brendan Rodgers, bringing in a lot of mediocre drafts like Benteke and, and Klein. Um, so, you know, I'd be in the mood of keeping Bobby, which would mean we'd bring in one and attack Matthias Cunha. I mean, Guri, players of this nature would seem to fit the bill. Someone that can play central or wide, uh, someone with that bit of versatility. Then maybe we would go for, you know, a, a a bigger type of fee, a Darwin Nunes type, who knows? But I think someone who's got more flexibility is more likely. And Guri and Cunha do profile well as players that would fit how we play and what we look for in attackers. But, you know, that that would be three then that we'd need, and then it would just come down to Joe Gomez. Cost us maybe if he decides he'd like to move on and play more regularly. But Joe is the one that we've heard of strong interest in from Aston Villa he's the fourth centre-back at Liverpool, he's too good to be the fourth centre-back and a move to Villa to play next to Esri Conza would make a lot of sense if they could find the money necessary to do the deal so if he goes again you're just looking to replace him but again it's a fourth centre-back you're buying, you can buy someone young with high upside and make probably a substantial profit on the deal. Um, it's It won't be a priority unless Joe goes. Same as if Sadio and Bobby re-up and we keep all three of the front three, then we don't need to buy an attack because we'll have a starting three, let's just say, of Mo, Jota and Mane for now with Cade, Bobby and Diaz as a backup three. That's very strong. And the same thing in defence. We'd have Trent plus the newbie, Joel and Ibu, Virgil and Joe, uh, uh, Andy Robertson and Costas. That would be the defence sorted. You're just looking for that one in midfield. We've made it so that if the Carvalho deal goes through, and again, he'd be another option in the attacking area who could also maybe be transitioned into an eight, we wouldn't be leaving ourselves with a whole lot to do, which would be very, very nice to go into the summer Knowing that we've been told, now how much you buy into it, I don't know, but we've been told there will be money to spend. There is plans for the summer. It is going to be the refresh of the squad. There's less refreshing needed as things currently stand. Yeah, I don't think that there's going to be big overhauls in any time at the moment. I think we've done sort of one or two the way that we've needed to over the last sort of year or so. I thought the forward line needed one maybe a year earlier. But I also sort of put part of that on Origi leaving, for example. Um, Maybe if one of the two of the the younger defenders left, you could have said another one in the previous summer. But it's been okay. Maybe we can argue, you know, there's been one short each year. So we're sort of one behind. But I'm with you. I think one big midfield sign and has to be the priority for for the summer. And beyond that, anything else is kind of good additions. I mean, we keep hearing from the local journalists that there's a really a lot of potential behind Connor Bradley and what they think that he can do, uh, the mm. coaches at the club. But then we've also heard that they think that he's going to be a midfielder later on. So you're still looking at needing that right back uh, yeah. across the course of the next... He's also uh, 18. Years at least. Yeah, 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 you're not going to be looking at him playing too much anyway at the, at the beginning no. and certainly not in midfield area. So, so I think the idea like, would be to sign a bridge right back who we can get two or three good years from, sell at a profit, 
maybe Bradley spends a year or two years of that on loan. And then we sell that right back and Bradley becomes the backup right back. And then if he develops to a point where he's too good to keep as a backup, you sell him. Or if he, like you said, if he transitions into midfield, then maybe that's where he ends up. But certainly it's a good way for us to keep the squad fresh and to potentially make some money. Like if we sold Costas this summer, not saying we will, but if we sold him this summer, You'd fancy we'd make a tidy profit on him. And if we could then turn that money into his replacement and cash to go towards something else, maybe that's the plan. Look, if Costas left in the summer for, I don't know, 15 million rising to 18, and we just went knocking on Newcastle's door and we said, look, clearly you don't want Jamal Lewis. Here's 8 million. This is a player we've been very keen on in the past. He's obviously passed all the the check marks for the Liverpool recruitment team, if we get Lewis in for, you know, a a lower fee than what we were going to pay the last time, well, then we could, again, develop him for two or three years, reboost his value, and then sell him on and go find someone else. And in positions where you have players who are among the best in the world, that's the best thing to do with those depth spots behind them is just use them as ways to boost value of players, sell them and continue to make ourselves as self-sufficient and self-sustaining as possible. I think for right back, there's a really quite clear standout who we should at least be looking at to see what the finances in terms of salary and everything would be. And that's Nusser Mazraoui. Uh, play yes. for Ajax. He's out of contract this summer. You know, Twenty-four years old. You get him on a free transfer. Like you say, you can get two years, maybe even three years out of him if he, mm-hmm. if he, does play a little bit more than he expected. He has a history of playing, filling in at least at left back and even in midfield, to be honest. I don't really like him in midfield, but he has played there. Um, but certainly as, as decent cover on both sides of the fence, someone that I'd be perfectly happy to chuck into even a big Champions League game because he's done them before. He's a title winner. He's you know, seasoned international, obviously. So there's not really any issue with how good he is and how consistent he is and the price-wise should be fine. Someone like that would be an absolutely good recruit for me this summer. Yeah, he would like he would probably be the most sensible transfer that we could do at right back because like you say he will be on a free. I don't imagine his wage demands would be enormous, you know, would would 60 grand a week get him would 80 grand a week get him. I mean, I think eight, if you get him on 80 grand a week on a four or five year deal, get two good years out of him, sell him on for 15, 18 million perhaps, which is the kind of figures he was been linked with moves away for last year, then that's the perfect thing to do. And then, like we said earlier, you've got Bradley to step in or whoever else has come along from the academy or, you know, if we if we pluck a youngster from somewhere else in the meantime and they just step on and the train keeps rolling and then that money can be used elsewhere. elsewhere. That, that 18 million could be put into the big pot to go and find Whatever it is that we need at that point, maybe we start looking for, you know, f- for who knows what, uh, another midfielder, another centre-back, uh, you know, a long-term replacement for Robbo, whatever it may be, that's where that money can come from. Let's talk about the deal, the, the, the deals that did happen. Let's start with the outgoings, Carl, because I want to finish on Diaz. I want to finish on a high, but Nico's gone on loan to Fulham. Now, Fulham have Kenny Tete at right back, who at this point is a better player than Nico, 
but has had quite a few injury problems this season. So Dennis Adoy has played over half, I think, Fulham's league games. Adoy has left, so there will be a lot of games there if Tete continues to be injured. It's probably a good loan for him in that it's the championship, but it's the high end of the championship. And he's going to be in a team chasing a title there. So games are going to be high pressure. There's going to be expectation. He's walking into a club where he knows Harry Wilson really, really well. And he's walking into a club where he's going to be going up against good players in training every day, such as Fabio Carvalho. And maybe he can continue to, you know, to sell the club, sell the move to Liverpool to Carvalho. And it can be beneficial in a multitude of ways. And if they come up, they may well want to keep him. Yes, they might. And you would expect that that's basically the target that he's got going there. Um, with the top of the league, get us up. <laughs> that's that's pretty much as simple as that. They are in a position where they're going to be expected to win nearly every game. Uh, he's going to have that pressure of, of needing to win. It's not going to be like, let's say, the Harry Wilson loans where he went to I don't know, Hull or you know, some of the other ones where, OK, he played well and he could get some goals. But if he didn't win... In any given match, it doesn't really matter because Hull were probably only expected to be 12th or 9th or 15th in any given season. So this is a kind of a, a different loan. It is a bit of a step-up loan, I think. And in all honesty, this season we've seen a definite improvement, undeniable improvement in, in Nico Williams, uh, especially with Wales some of the time and when he's been called upon very, very occasionally for Liverpool. So he needs to be able to be at the top of the championship among the best players. Simple as that. In terms of consistency, maybe not in terms of on the ball and you know what he's capable of doing and all the rest of it, because that's just the player he is. But in terms of his positional work, his ability to impact the game down his side of the pitch, consistency, absolutely, first and foremost. You have to be pretty much dead on. You've got to be one of the best players there. If you're thinking that you should be playing for Liverpool more often or you want more game time than it's going to be in the Premier League, I presume that a big part of the reason is that he wants to be in... Um, Wales playoff team as well uh, yes. for, the, for the World Cup and then obviously in the World Cup squad itself if they get through so this is a really really big opportunity for him but it's also a very very important one for the near term of his career you know if he does really well there establishes himself as a, a regular performer who can't be dropped gets himself a place in the team then come summer you're going to have Premier League clubs much more willing to make the the big offer to you to say you're going to be our first choice right back and that's the kind of thing that's going to get him, for example, established in the in the Wales team without any fears of not playing on a regular basis. I don't think it's just going to be about getting game time alone. I think this is more about proving what level he's at. And it's a good team to go into because there are very good players in the team. Tolson at centre-back is comfortably, I think, the best centre-back in the championship. Uh, Anthony Robinson is a very, very good left-back. You've got quality in midfield with the likes of Harrison Reed and John Michel Seri. You've got Harry Wilson. You've got Carvalho. And you've got Mitrovic up front on an absolute tear this season, um, looking like he's going to break every single scoring record in the championship. And for a player like Nico, who is a good crosser of the ball, he could rack up some assists there. And the thing is, if he establishes himself as first choice and he does really well and they come up, and other Premier League clubs do look at him and say, oh, we'd like to have him. He's he's a, an upgrade or he's, you know, a successor to what we have. Well, that also puts more pressure back on Fulham because all of a sudden they may not be the only club 
who are bidding for him. And while they may think, okay, we'll get him for 10 million. Well, if someone else comes in at 11 or 12, if he's done really well, there will be pressure on them from their fans, from their manager to keep him. If he's a player who's settled really well, if he develops a good partnership down that right-hand side with Harry Wilson, they'll want to keep that. So the better he does, the more money we'll get for him. Because the more clubs that go in, the more pressure that goes on Fulham. And if even if they get outbid, they'll probably have driven that price up. And we may end up getting more for Nico than we expect or more than he's actually worth, which is, at the end of the day, is what we want as a club, is we want to maximise the value of every single asset. And this is a great move for Nico where we can maximise the value of the asset. The other yes, player gone... as long as he plays well. As, as long as he plays well. It's on him. Like, it is on him. You're being given a good opportunity. You're walking into a good team. There's no real excuse here. Now, the one excuse he may have is, like I said, I, I do think Kenny Tete is a better player than him right now. More experienced, played at a higher level. You know, he's played Champions League football regularly. He's been a Dutch international for a while. He's been at Lyon, you know, so he's been around. He's, he's, he's seen quite a bit. But if Nico gets his game, then it's up to him to keep his spot. Like Dennis Adoy was, is Dennis Adoy. He's not very good, but he was playing quite well this season and he was keeping Tete out of the team in, in certain weeks as well. Um, the other loan is one I'm I'm less enthused by for a number of reasons, but Nat Phillips has gone on loan to Bournemouth. Uh, just what are your thoughts on that straight away? Uh sort of between amused and bemused at Bournemouth suddenly deciding they needed an entire new first eleven on the last day of the month, halfway through the season. Um, this is a team who, they are third at the moment, so obviously chasing Premier League football for next season. And I guess with the amounts that they've paid for players uh, during the course of January, they're thinking that if they do get promoted, that's going to way outweigh what they have actually outlaid, especially with most of them being loans. They did make a couple of permanent signings as well. And I think they paid a million and a half to take Phillips on loan for the season, for the rest of the season. So it's 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 lower than I think he should be playing. I think Nat Phillips at this age, for the age that he is, you know, the, the maturity in his game, despite not having actually that much actual on pitch experience, I think he's fine for for lower end of the Premier League, to be honest. And I would have thought that someone like I'm not sure, maybe Burnley, for example, maybe even Norwich would have got more benefit from him at the bottom end of the table than a Bournemouth would at the top end of their table. Even though it's a lower down, it's a different style of the game, style of play, style of results that are required sort of thing. We know that Nat's strengths are in repelling the ball coming into the box, in defending sort of quite small areas, that kind of thing. That's not really how Bournemouth are facing most of their matches at the moment. So hopefully he's able to adapt to that quite well and same as Nico, I suppose, in terms of proving himself being better than that standard is, because he will have offers again come the summer. Uh, and I, I kind of feel that this is a little bit more about actually finding out whether Liverpool's valuation of him, which we're told is 15 million or so, is actually too high or is about right. You know, if he has a really good half season, then absolutely there's precedent to look at other players who've moved from um, the Championship or the lower end of the Premier League as centre backs for that amount of money. No problem. If he's only all right, then we are probably going to have to acknowledge that we'll need to bring it down a bit, especially if it is still going to be Watford and Burnley, that kind of team who are looking at signing him in the summer. 
But also the fact that, do we know that Burnley actually have interest? Because the only mention of it has been from Liverpool Journal. And yeah. I don't see Burnley paying 10 to 12 million for a fellow who doesn't get in their team. Like, Nat doesn't start for Burnley. Tarkovsky and Ben Mee are better than him. Nathan Collins is better than him. So if he goes there, he's the fourth centre-back. Tarkovsky will leave in the summer, but Collins will just step in for him, so he'd be third choice. I, I don't think Burnley would spend that type of money on a player who's not starting. You mentioned Norwich. He would have to play instead of Grant Hanley. Now, I don't particularly rate Grant Hanley, but he is their captain. Are they going to drop their captain for Nat Phillips? Watford was the one. Because I don't think Newcastle's interest was real. I think if it was, they would have bought him over Dan Byrne. He would have been a little bit cheaper. He's five years younger, and he's, an, he's a natural centre-back. Whereas Dan Byrne's Premier League experience as centre-back in a back four is about 15 games, which is about the same as Nats. So you're not gaining anything by going for Dan Byrne, other than the fact that when he was 11, you told him he wasn't good enough and kicked him out the door. So I don't know that Newcastle had real interest, but Watford definitely did. And he definitely walks into the Watford team and he's day one their best centre-back, in part because they've got the worst group of centre-backs the Premier League has ever seen. But Watford seemed like a more sensible move. And if they'd stayed up, they were giving, they were offering an obligation to buy. So I don't know why we didn't go back to them at the on deadline day and say, look, if you're still open to taking Nat on loan, We'll do that. It it makes more sense to me. If he, he goes to Bournemouth, right, they've brought in James Hill from Fleetwood, who they've actually bought. Very, very talented young defender. Very highly rated by all accounts. They've brought in Dembele. They've brought in Kiefer Moore. And then they've loaned in Ethan Laird, Nat, Freddie Woodman, which is just weird because Mark Travers has been their best player this year. Um, and Todd Cantwell, and we'll come to him later on when we talk about a few other things, but Nat goes in there. He's not getting in the team ahead of, um, what's the left-footed kid's name that we tried to say? Lewis, Lloyd Kelly. He's not getting in ahead of him because that's the left-footed ball-playing progressive centre-back. So Gary Cahill's position is the one he'd be looking to take. I don't know that he's going to get as many starts as we would hope. Like, they've got 18 games left. I think, ideally, you'd be looking at him getting sort of 14 starts between now and the end of the season. A couple of weeks to to get ready to play and, you know, get used to what the manager wants. But does he even get that with Cahill there? It's a weird loan for me. I really don't know why... I don't know why Bournemouth wanted it, and I don't know why we've agreed to it. Well, I presume there's going to be an element of at least rotation there, and certainly Cahill being 214 years old will will contribute to that. But um, like I said, I, I'm not, I'm never really sold on the idea of making so many changes mid-season, especially when it is a team who are doing very, very well at the top of the table. And I do feel that there's always a danger, especially when they're doing so many deals, of that is just, let's pay for them, let's get them in if we need them then if it does make us go up, we've still won financially. You know, it's just players there just in case so that not doing anything in the window doesn't cost them, even though it might sort of not really contribute too much to them going up anyway. But I don't know, because I've not really been watching 
Bournemouth this season. Uh, I've just had a quick look and 23rd of April, that's the day to mark in your diaries. That's the big Nat versus Nico encounter, Bournemouth v Fulham. Um, slight problem with that is that it's also the day of the Merseyside derby, so most of us listening might actually be otherwise occupied. I don't know what you mean. I think it'll it'll be good to watch Bournemouth and Fulham. One of them may not come up, therefore one of them may well be playing Everton this season. Um, it, it's just a bit of a weird one for me. And like you said, I mean, it's it's the top half of a league where the style that they're they're a bit more progressive and attack minded than maybe is suited to that. But we'll wait and see. Like we don't know how it'll. Go. To me, it's just a weird one because we heard from September onwards that there was going to be this raft of teams interested in that. 15 million was the price and all this. And it was all repeatedly coming from the Liverpool side. None of it ever really seemed to come from anywhere else. There was talk of West Ham. There was talk of Newcastle, of Burnley, of you know, of other clubs. And in the end, the only offers we got were Leicester, who... We're never going to keep him. They were only looking for him as an emergency loan. And in truth, he'd probably play three or four games there, and that'd be it, because Fafana will come back. Evans will come back. So he wasn't going to get his game regularly there. And Watford. And I just don't understand why we didn't take Watford's deal or go back to them towards the end of the window when nothing else was materialising and say, look, we'll do the deal for Nash. You clearly, You clearly need him. And now they've got Hodge, they'd probably want him even more. So it's just a bit of a strange one to me. The one deal that got done in terms of an incoming, though, is the is the big one. It's the one that really could give us a massive boost towards the end of this season, and that is Luis Diaz. Now, we haven't had a chance to really speak at all, bar a few WhatsApp messages, about this. So what are your thoughts on Luis Diaz as a player? and then as a signing for Liverpool? Well, I've had a big grin across my face for about uh, 48 hours now, so that should sort of explain most of it. Uh, This is a guy who I think was one of the most likely signings out of all the players that we've been linked with across the last probably four months, something like that, just in terms of not just style and all the on-pitch stuff, but the actual profile of the the player, the age, the, the price range, the type of team that we were taking him off. This was one of the ones that most fit. And there's a there's a long way to go with this guy yet. This is a guy with really, really good coaching, can become, I'd, I'd say, another 30, 40, 50% on top of what he is, already is at the minute. I'm not saying he's definitely going to get there because obviously that's down to individual application, all the rest of it, settling into a new country, all that kind of stuff that normally goes with football players. But for the amount of actual top-tier games that he's had, for the level that he's gone between one Copa America and the next one uh, in the space of just a couple of years, the improvement that he has shown in that period, the type of player that he is, his physicality that he shows, the the way that he has actually learned the game since he was in Portugal, I think there's loads more to come from Diaz. I can see this being, within 18 months, a signing that looks an absolute steal. Well, that would be kind of par for the course with us because Salah, well, within... A month <laughs> looked like the greatest bargain ever. Mane obviously put aside all doubts on him real quick and then developed into one of the best players in the league. We're 18 months after Diogo Jota's signing when Wolves fans were very, very excited and claimed they'd ripped us off. 
and now they look really silly. And obviously, Bobby probably Bobby took the longest to get going, largely because Brendan thought he was a winger, I think, or, or a wing back. I don't really know if Brendan knew what he was given. But once Klopp took over and Bobby settled, you know, around the six month mark, he really started to go. The great thing with Diaz, is, whereas we we sort of needed Mane and Mo to settle really quickly and have instant impact because of where we were as a team. We don't need Diaz to do that. Anything we get from him between now and the end of the season is a big bonus because he's not a player that we planned to have this season. He was clearly a summer target that we had to jump on because Spurs were were trying to sign him. And he gets this free hit now for six months where he can settle in, adapt to new club, new country, you know, new way of life. He'll obviously have some help. We've got plenty of South Americans and Portuguese speakers at the club who'll help him, sorry, Portuguese and Spanish speakers at the club who'll help him adapt. He'll get a full pre-season, which will be huge. And then next season, come August, then you're kind of looking for him to hit the ground running at that point where he's had seven, eight months in the system, in the lab with Klopp and Pep and Linders and the rest of the coaches, developing his game, you know, building him up, making him a bit stronger, working on the pressing side, which is sort of one of the areas you'd say needs improvement. But that's not on him. That's a coaching thing. Conceição is not big on pressing in wide areas. He prefers his wingers to drop back and, you know, help out fullbacks and things. So all of that can be taken care of in this interim where we've got our first four attackers, Bobby, Mo, Mane and Jota. And he can just kind of be that fifth attacker who is just an upgrade in the short term on Divock and Taki. That's all we really need him to be this summer is just be better than those two. Or this season, rather. Be better than those two. And then next season, you really show us what you can do. Now, if he carries the form he's shown in recent months over, he's probably going to be our second or third best attacker straight away. But you wouldn't want to put pressure on him like that. No, I think that's fair. I mean, look, he's not even expected to be into the country until sort of later towards the end of this week. So you're probably looking at maybe he's not even available for the Cardiff game. So then Leicester's the first one he's actually available for. But even after that point, we've still got, what, 18 games, I think, at the minute still left. Plus maybe a few more if we beat Cardiff in the Cup and if we progress in the Champions League. So let's say let's say there are at least 20 games left that he could play in. How many do you reckon he might start out of that? Ignoring any potential injuries and stuff like that, but just as a just as a matter of he's a new player under Jurgen Klopp for a team still competing on multiple fronts. How many might he be expected to start? Five? Yeah, maybe? I reckon so. Yeah, I reckon yeah. about a quarter of the matches, yeah. You give him a chance, like you know, one of the league games, let's say, before a Champions League second leg or obviously the FA Cup if we beat Cardiff and go through to the next round, something like that. I think there are five starts there comfortably to be made and you would expect maybe even double that number of sub-appearances. Some of the time it might be that we go to him as an actual game-changer. Some of the time it might be that we're, you know, 5 nil up against Man United with 35 minutes played. So you bring him on and give him a good hour's run out just for a bit of a, a bit of a knockabout and a confidence booster to get the next six goals, you know. But there are, there are obviously going to be spells where he might not play for maybe a full month, 
something like that. You think back to last season, Curtis Jones was in the team all the time and then didn't play for absolutely ages. And this happened to several players before. Minamino, another good example, had a decent little run last season and then was immediately sent out on loan after his best game. Um, Origi had a couple of decent games earlier on and then has been injured since then and we've not seen anything at all. So there's going to be a period where, for whatever the reason is, tactical, other form, injuries to himself, whatever it is, there will be a period where we don't call upon him at all. But I think if he does get that sort of half a dozen-ish starts between now and the end of the season, that is a huge, huge step forward for next year's preparations. It's not going to be the bedding in process of all of that stuff in pre-season. That'll just be for actual you know, squad integration and seeing where he actually is on a, on a technical level. What what role is his going to be the best one? I mean, we obviously assume that he's going to be the left-sided forward option, but along with Mane, along with Jota, also able to play there. Taki has played outside there as well. Is he going to be someone that we look to play on the right-hand side and give us a lot more width in some games and let Trent really roam in that central mm. spot? Uh, and obviously Salah then dovetails inside. Is this going to be another sort of tactical iteration that Klopp looks to just use once in a while? So there's lots and lots to, of reasons to suggest that there's going to be game time for him and that he might be used in less expected ways, I think. Um, but just in a, in a broad spectrum, what he's capable of doing, what his best role is, the best movements that we see from him. I think there are a couple of things that are really going to surprise people in a very, very positive way. Uh, I think if we especially look at like Jota and his head and ability, Mane's head and ability, he's another one the same. He's yeah. unbelievably good at finding little gaps in between the pockets of defences and not even jumping in the way that Mane does, but just running across them and timing it so he lands edge the ball on the run. He doesn't even leave the ground half of the time and he'll still score quite a few headed goals just from his movement intelligence and really, really good acceleration in the first few yards. Yeah, he's really aggressive at attacking the ball, which is something I really like. I think you're right. Like, If we consider that maybe he gets a couple of sub run outs, maybe he comes on as a sub against Burnley. Norwich could be the first one to start him in. That's the 19th of February. And then maybe he starts the next round of the FA Cup, the fifth round of the FA Cup. And then maybe he has a couple of sub-appearances and then maybe he starts against Watford. That's the 2nd of April. And then maybe it's a couple of sub-appearances and then maybe he starts the 6th round of the FA Cup if we get there. Or, you know, if we get past Inter and we get a favourable draw and we wallop a team in the first leg, Maybe he starts in the second leg. We've seen Klopp do that before. Rest players when we're, you know, we have a healthy lead from the first leg. And then say he gets the Wolves game on the final day of the season. Well, that would be five starts. There's also, like, the potential for a sixth-round FA Cup. Um, You know, maybe there's another game in there, another easy United at home maybe could be a game. You throw him in and just say, look, see that fellow over there? They paid $50 for that right back. Go out and turn him into a pretzel. Um, you know, Newcastle away. There'll be games and there'll be plenty of, you know, opportunities probably off the bench. But in terms of starts, yeah, I think five would be a good... If he can get to five starts, I think that's really good. And if he can get, you know, five or six or seven appearances off the bench, all the better. It's all minutes under his belt in this system, getting reps, understanding what's required, figuring out, you know the different intricacies of the role of what Klopp wants from him. It's all positive. It's all positive. It's it's such a benefit to sign him now, given how we've seen Jurgen operate in the past, 
with new signings who come in and are coming from a system that has some similarities, but a lot of, you know, a lot of shape differences, a lot of philosophical differences, such as Conceição's Porto team. Fabinho was the kind of primary example of this. Andy Robertson took, what, five months to get going, really, and only really got into the team because Albi Moreno got injured. If Albi didn't get hurt, Robert would have had to wait a bit longer. But, yeah, I mean, getting him now, just it, it's such a, a boost for us because when we really want him to be at his best, which will be next season, he'll already have been here eight months. And that will all be invaluable to him. And not having a World Cup this summer is massive as well. I know it's in, in the winter and whatever else, but it will mean that he'll be fresh for pre-season. He'll be there for, we'll have everyone for pre-season. And then we can hit the ground running next season. And hopefully by the time the break comes to the World Cup, we'll be 10 points clear and sailing along, waving behind at Man City. I don't like tagging players returning from injuries as new signings. I think it's really annoying, but getting Harvey Elliott back, Carl, is a bit like a new signing because he played so little before he got hurt for us, but was looking so exciting in that right-sided midfield role. His return's a huge boost as well. Yeah, I've been backwards and forwards over how much I think he's actually going to play now. Um, obviously, there's the, the getting back to full fitness thing, which in itself will take a while just because he's back in full training doesn't mean he's ready to go and do 10, 15 games in a row or anything like that. But even just from the perspective of, again, looking at Klopp's historical team alterations, his process in when players come in and out of the side, uh, I do think he'll get game time, but I don't necessarily think that he'll become a starter again over the course of the next maybe a month or two, especially coming into this part of the season where we're going to notice it more now. If we drop points, we're going to notice it more now. If we lose games, trophies are going to disappear if that happens in certain competitions. Um, he He's usually reasonably reluctant to change the team around too much once we get to this stage of the season. So I'm not 100% convinced that Harvey is actually going to come back in and play in a starting role, unless, obviously, that we will not be able to see that he's just so, so good in training. He's just impossible to leave out. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we're also getting Thiago back. We'll have Naby back now as well. So that's two more big pieces in midfield. Curtis is back. So again, that's another big piece in midfield. Ox, with the signing of Diaz, we'll probably see Ox less in the front three. So he's going to be competing for midfield minutes. So. There will be a lot of competition there, but look, even if he's not starting, having Harvey as a possible game changer just off the bench is is a big, big boost because, you know, we were looking at our bench in a couple of games and there wasn't a whole lot there to really get excited about. You know, it was it was tacky, it was Divock, it was James Milner, and now it's Harvey Elliott and Luis Diaz. And that is certainly an upgrade on what we had pre-Christmas. Ah, yeah, definitely. And especially so on not having Div and Taki on the bench pre-Christmas, which was uh, which was the case at times as well. Mm. Um, look, overall, we haven't really lost anybody from the bench or from the team who was playing a massive part. Um, you know, the departures were very, very much bit part players coming into nothing matches, to be perfectly honest, of which there aren't really any more. 
so we've added a couple of players. That's basically the, the net position of, of Klopp's options after this transfer window. And the fact that they are attacking options, uh, very creative and fast-paced options when they're at their best, this is a good thing. Simple as that. Uh, there, there, there is now, on any given weekend, maybe more chance that Liverpool win a game than not, simply by what's been done and who's back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at Nat, he, he had three appearances this year. One in the EFL Cup, one start in the Champions League, one appearance off the bench. Uh, Nico had played eight times, but only once in the league, uh, four in the EFL Cup and three in the Champions League. One was it one start and two sub appearances. So you're not you're not losing a whole lot. Trent was going to play every game at right back. We have the option of Bradley. We have the option of Joe Gomez to go there. I mean, Conor Bradley's played five games. So, you know, he's played close enough to what Nico had played. Gomez had played a lot more than Nat, as had Ibu. We have Reese Williams comes back from the loan at Swansea. So, as a body, he fills the void left by Nat. Uh, Billy Kemetio is still there as an option as well, if need be. But, you know, we are fairly well stocked at centre back. Nat won't be missed. And we can just make up the difference of, of Nico not being there by using Connor, by using Joe. And um, it, it does make us stronger. It does absolutely make us stronger. This has been a very, very successful window for Liverpool. I, you, I would say, sorry, I would say if, if we'd sold Nat and gotten the Carvalho deal across the line, you would have been talking about it as a, basically a perfect win- window. Yeah, not wrong. Um, you know, one of those obviously doesn't really have too much future at the club long term. So, if we do go on and sell him for a reasonable amount of money, say anything above ten million, I think it probably justifies the the new contract as well last summer because it would have paid off in terms of protecting the value of him going forward. So, hopefully, that's not one that drags on with another loan for another season or anything like that. And if that is the case, then we've done well there. You mentioned Connor Bradley and Javier Elliott being like a new signing. Bradley's actually played more minutes than Harvey Elliott has this season across all competitions. That's that's how little we've been able to see what Elliott's capable of and obviously how much people are looking forward to it because it was a very, very big, explosive, but short impact that he had. Um, and I think if we can still get a little bit out of maybe maybe not so much Kate Gordon now that we've got Diaz in, obviously depending on fitness and injuries and all the rest of it, but maybe a bit, little bit more out of Tyler Morton as well across the rest of the season. Connor Bradley, like you mentioned, and Harvey Elliott. Those three kids across different lines of the team probably provides us with enough cover after the subs cover um, and, and gives them more hope, obviously, for next season or what level they need to be at across the summer, that sort of thing. It's, it, it is all... I think very, very positive coming out of this window mm. for Liverpool, especially when you look around the business that some teams did or didn't do. Yeah, and like you say, I mean, Curtis will also play more, you'd expect, in the second half of the season than he did in the first half when he missed, was it 16, 17 games in total um, with the eye injury and different things. So, you know, that'll be a boost as well. Even if it's only a slight, a slight uptick, more minutes for Curtis is less minutes for James Milner, and I'm all about less minutes for James Milner. Um, I think we, we have to mark this as a very successful window and hopefully it provides the springboard that we're looking for. We're still in all four competitions. I think the league might be a step too far, but if we can put together a run, 
if we can go to the Etihad and beat City, you don't know. Who knows what what happens? Because we've seen this City team look a little bit flawed at times. Now, we're flawed as well, obviously. But we're also a team that have shown in the past, the end of last season as, as an example, a capability to string together results. And if you look at last season, for the first 16 games and the last 10 games, we were the best team in the country. It was that 12 games in between that absolutely ruined our season. But we are capable of putting together stretches where we are unquestionably the best team in the country. And if we can do that again, with 16 games left in the league, you just don't know what happens. Maybe City, City bottle it. They've, they've done it before. They've had you know recent results that really were not favourable for them. And uh, this season they've looked flawed at times, like Palace, Southampton twice. If more teams go at them and more teams can get that first goal against them, this City team doesn't play well from behind. They're very much flat-track bullies. They go out, they get ahead, and that's it. If you can get them behind, they do struggle. And uh, we have, I think, a stronger mentality than them. I really do. Um, The Champions League will be fun. Inter missing Barella for both games. That's massive. And then we're in a cup final. And I think we're going to take the FA Cup fairly serious as well. And maybe that's an avenue for Harvey and, and Diaz to really start to establish themselves back into things and get plenty of minutes. Maybe it's an avenue for Naby to show what he can do a bit more uh, and maybe earn a bit more trust from the manager. But all things considered, it's it's got to be seen as a positive time. Let's bounce around the league a little bit. Um, let's start next door. Let's start with the Ev, Carl. First things first, Frank Lampard is the new manager of Everton. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Discuss or disgusted? Um, Both. Yeah, look, this could go very, very well. It could, because he is a manager who, first and foremost, the fans basically picked rather than the board. Uh, and so there is going to be an element of togetherness just about that. Simple as that. Uh, I do think that he is, for some teams, the type of personality and the type of well-known character who can just, you know, command a little bit of, uh, not necessarily time, not necessarily respect, but something in between the two. He can just let people give him a chance, I think, to to do what he can. There's not really any evidence of why that should be, but I do think that that's still the case at the minute. And I think they could have done a lot worse, let's put it that way. I think that the 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 routes that they were going with some of the managers who they were supposedly talking to, people like um, Martinez again, and a couple of the other ones that they were linked to, this was all, again, like I was saying a billion times before, there's just no consistency in any of their decision-making. There's no joined up style or anything at all between managers. I think Lampard can be a bit of a bridge of that because he's not so completely set in any single way. They, we've seen him play with the back three. We see them play between a 4-3-1 and a 4-3-3 uh, with the two previous clubs. I think he still presumably acknowledges that he's inexperienced enough that he might have to change according to needs. So I think that there's a little bit more flexibility there in terms of what they might get out of him. Um, I'm not going to pretend 
in any way, shape or form that I think that it's a really, really good idea that what they've done here is replicate their 2017 idiocies and sign all the number 10s again. Mm. Uh, Van der Beek and Dele Alli together, I think, is not going to work out well for one of them. And I assume that one is going to end up being Van der Beek because he is only on loan. If they try to play them together, I was trying to figure this out yesterday. How are they going to fit him? Sorry, how are they going to fit both of them together? If they play a three in midfield, it's doable if you play them both as eights, but you're going to have to ask an awful lot of Alain behind them. Now, yeah, obviously they, whose, they have, whose, legs, whose legs appear to be going. Yes, a bit, yes. Um, it, it kind of depends on how he sets them up in terms of how high up the pitch are they going to press, all the rest of that sort of stuff, because I don't honestly think that... Deli Alley and Donny van der Beek, who has barely played for the last 18 months, is going to be capable of pressing coherently, cohesively together uh, to support the attack and still do their midfield work. Um, they are both much, much more number 10s than box-to-box players. Mm. Although, who knows, because they have hardly played so much, they might just be willing to do absolutely anything to get back on the pitch. Um, so it could go either way. Takuri, I know, is obviously a big one for them, but he's going to be out for at least a month. So it, they might only have him for like another six games, seven games, something like that this season, to be perfectly honest. So I don't think that that needs to be taken into too much account. Um, they could go with wingbacks 3-5-2 and go with Calvert Lewin and Richarlison up front. Again, you've got the issue of they don't really have a left wingback now. Uh, Michelenko, no, because Michelenko in the back three is more three. of a centre-back, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's a left-sided three. Um, I, I don't really understand why... Donny van de Beek decided to go there rather than Palace. I can only assume it's because he didn't want to move house. Because there's no logical reason to choose Everton on loan over Palace when you look at, well, where they are in the league. You look at Conor Gallagher and how he's really built his value and become such a highly regarded player this year. Donny could have gone in and had a similar enough impact. And Donny and Gallagher would have been a better pairing in a three, those two plus a holder, because Gallagher's kind of that in between. He's not a he's not a six or a ten. He is he is a pure eight. He could have been that bridge between, say, Coyate as the holding midfield and Donny as the attacking one, and Gallagher sort of in between doing the rest. Delhi The Delhi deal will go one of two ways. There's there's gonna be no middle ground on it will either be a disaster, in which case they may well end up just turning around and selling him in the summer, or it's going to be a success and, and he will turn things around. I, I just don't see that there'll be a middle ground. If he goes there and does really well, first of all, Spurs will end up getting a lot more money out of it than people seem to think. The add-ons and such can go to $40 million. And from what I heard from a few Spurs people yesterday, they're not actually hard to hit. They're basically, if he plays X amount of games, if he scores X amount of goals, if he gets back in the England squad, things like that, which are all very manageable if he plays well. Um, so it could work out to be a good deal for all parties. I like the idea of a 4-2-3-1 with Delhi behind Calvert-Lewin, Richarlison left side, Damari Gray right side. I just don't know what goes behind them. They've, they've obviously got their new fullbacks. They're still lacking one at centre-back, but if Mina can stay fit, then Mina and Godfrey is fine. But Alan and Donny is not a midfield two I want any part of. Dukure and Donny is not a midfield I want any 
And if it's Dekure and Alan, then what did you sign Donny van der Beek for? I, I think Donny has been getting really bad advice in the last couple of years. Joining United was a bad career move. I think this one could be as well. But if he's the one that gets to start, then poor old Delhi is uh, is on the outside looking in. And I don't know if you saw the picture of him signing a contract yesterday, but it is the most forced smile I have ever seen in my entire life. It's the smile of somebody realising my lifelong dream of playing for Liverpool is ending and now I have to play for Everton. Everton are the masters of the uh, forced smile when people sign for them. Mm. Look, I, I still think they're worth consideration as a potential relegation team because I look up and down the league and is there any manager in the league right now that Frank Lampard is actually better than? Dyche, no. Hodgson, no. Howe, probably not. Smith, no. Bielsa, no. Frank, no. Vieira, no. Hasenhutl, no. Gerrard, no. Rodgers, no. And then you're into the top half. And he's not better than Potter. He's not better than Lage. He's definitely not better than Conte. I mean, Artet is a, a Lego head, but he's probably a slightly better manager than, than Lampard. Uh, Moyes is clearly better. Ranić, despite the fact he's not really a manager, is better. Tuchel, Klopp, and Guardiola. I, I think you can make a real case that Frank Lampard's the worst manager in the league right now. And okay. Everton are a team going backwards. His defensive setups at both Derby and Chelsea have been very, very poor. And uh, I don't really, I don't see it, Carl. I really don't. He failed at Derby. He took over a team that finished sixth. Spent a bunch of money, w- raised their wage bill monumentally, and finished sixth. And then he bottled a playoff final. He took over a Chelsea team that had finished third and won a Europa League, had a really good squad, were nailed on to finish fourth, but finished top four. And he finished top four purely because Leicester bottled the end of that season. Then he bottled the FA Cup against Arteta and a mediocre Arsenal team, spent a bunch of money and had them in ninth. I don't see it with him. I really don't. I don't see anything to suggest he's a good manager. They need a really, really fast start from him, basically. They, mm. They've got about three games and an FA Cup match where you know points are there to be won, at the very least. They need a response. They need an improvement. The first one of those is against Newcastle, though, who have just made a load of improvements themselves. So yeah. that will be a big one. But they have a horrendous run after that. Really, really bad, I think, from sort of towards the end of February onwards. It's Man City, Tottenham, Wolves all in and around European spots. Watford, fine. But then West Ham, Man United, Palace, Liverpool, Chelsea, Leicester. I mean, that's terrible. And then Brentford and Arsenal to end. Like, Arsenal away on the last day. Like, even those easier games. Newcastle, it's away. Watford, it's away. You know, the Leeds game at home is probably the easiest game they have. Everything else is looking very, very difficult. It shouldn't. We should be looking at it and saying, well, they'll beat, they'll beat Newcastle, they'll beat Leeds, they'll beat Saints, they'll beat Wolves, they'll beat Watford. But they've been so poor this season. And, you know, what happens if Calvert-Lewin gets hurt again? Or Richarlison gets hurt again? There's, there's no depth there to back these lads up. The one thing Frank might have going for him is his kind of personality. He might be able to bring a bit of inspiration to this team 
he might have in the in the likes of Calvert Lewin and Gray and Deli Ali. They might be a bit starstruck by the fact that he's, he's Frank Lampard. But the truth of the matter is, if his name wasn't Frank Lampard, he would never have gotten the Chelsea job and he wouldn't be getting this job. And I, I've seen, you know, Everton fans and, and those friends of his in the media say, oh, well, for the last six months, he's been putting together this great team of, you know, of assistant man, assistant coaches and it's going to be a, a big plan. But two of the big names that were mentioned, one from Chelsea, one from the England setup, aren't coming with him. Paul Clement, the only thing that we know about Paul Clement is that he stood next to Carlo Ancelotti for a bunch of successful seasons. But we don't know how good he is because he's failed as a manager four different times. And they're keeping Duncan Ferguson now, who initially was meant to leave the club. And if the comments that are attributed to Ferguson about Michael Enko are real, well, that's a problem straight away. If he's really said that guy is not even a Premier League footballer, that's a big, big problem because there's no way that kid hasn't heard about that. And now what's he going to think? That this guy who's all of a sudden screaming at him to do whatever it is Duncan Ferguson wants players to do is, you know, doesn't rate him. He knows he doesn't rate him. So I don't know. Like, I I just don't know where this this goes. I, I can see him having maybe a little bit of a jump in the next two, three games. But after that, it's a whole load of trouble for Everton. And I, I, from all we've seen of Lampard, when things start to go against him as a manager, he doesn't know how to fix it. I think this season, this job is much more about man management than any kind of tactical things at all, because there are good enough players there to win matches. Mm. You have to obviously set them up in terms of, you know, off the ball and position and all the rest of it. But basically, you need to get more out of these players. I mean, look at Van der Beek. Since Solskjaer was sacked, his Premier League minutes on the pitch are 1-1-4-2-1. That's not a player who is doing anything at all other than wanting to get away from the environment he was in. And even if he's walked into Everton, which we know is a historical shambles, it's got to be better than what he was facing before. So your only job right now is to get these players positive thinking and out on the pitch and you know, obviously, the, the, like I said, the arrangement and the, the positional work and the work rate and all that, yes, fine. But more importantly right now is a positive mindset for these players because there are really talented players, like proper international class yeah. players who could oh, there's be loads of good players champion, there. Champions League players there. So that that's his job this year. The thing is, he, he took over a Derby team that were good. He took over a Chelsea team that were very good. And both teams are coming off good seasons with confidence flowing. This is a very different setup for him, walking into a team that have been dreadful this season. Confidence is probably at an all-time low, and he has to try and figure it out on the fly. There's no pre-season. There's no prep time. It's going to be games, 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 games. And you're going to have to. You're not getting Donny van de Beek and Deli Ali with a pre-season to try and rebuild their confidence and work with them daily. You're going to have to get their confidence back on the pitch, which is going to be very, very tough. You've also got the fact that both of your big two attackers, Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison, have been linked with moves away and maybe looking at this situation thinking, I'm off in the summer, no matter what happens. I'm gone this summer because I can go and play for a Champions League club or I can go from go and play for a team with ambitions of Champions League. Calvert-Lewin, United want him. Ar- Arsenal want him. 
There was rumours that Newcastle might want him. Richarlison's been linked to PSG and Barcelona in recent times. There's, I, I don't know that either of them are there next season. And I'm certainly not trusting Lampard to spend money, considering the catastrophic buys he made at Derby and the fact that under his watch, only Eduard Mendy could be seen as a successful buy for Chelsea, which, you know, really doesn't speak well of what he's done. Uh, let's move through the rest of the league then while we're here and just pick out a couple. Um, City didn't do anything. Well, they brought in Julian Alvarez, but he's not coming till the summer. Uh, Chelsea stood pat. United didn't do anything other than loan out a couple of players. But one that didn't get his loan was Jesse Lingard. Were you surprised he didn't get the loan? Yeah, I think Lingard and Henderson both, to be honest. Um, Both of them clearly want to play. Both of them clearly were expecting to be allowed to leave. I'm not really sure of the reasonings behind at least one of them being able to go. I mean, Henderson, I suppose, is a second-choice goalkeeper, but I'm not sure. They they obviously made promises to him last season with the new contract and getting his chance in the team and all the rest of it. Uh, Jesse Lingard... Uh, again, I'm not really sure where to go with this. I mean, there was the whole contract situation and he did well with West Ham last season. We've seen players push for departures and, and do whatever is needed to. Uh, obviously, he wasn't prepared to go down that route, which is fine. But then they've, again, barely used him. I s- suspect with Lingard, the only reason they've kept him in the end is obviously off pitch matters, which have yeah. recently gone down at Old Trafford and they, they feel they need that extra one just after Anthony Martial has disappeared. So maybe, you never know, it'll actually work out in favour of Lingard in, in terms of getting more more opportunities and minutes. But I don't see it. I don't really see it because, you know, he's not going to get in ahead of uh, Fernandes, obviously, at the at the number 10 role that he prefers. Maybe on the right-hand side, it opens up a little bit more for him now. But again, you're stretching a bit for a player who's barely featured for them for two years. Be some crack now if he, if he gets a run on the right wing and scores a few goals and they give him a new... Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've lost Martial on loan. They've lost Donny on loan. Diallo's gone on loan. And then obviously the the other issue, that's four players that they're now without for the rest of this. Well, I don't know how long the other fellow will be out, but potentially for the rest of the season, they're without all four of them, who three of whom at least were ahead of, of Lingard, you would suspect. So with Diallo being the other one, um, it maybe does open up minutes for him and maybe he does get a run and, and he can do something. But I mean, you would hope if you're a Man United fan that those two wide roles, one of them will be Jaden Sancho. That that has to be the hope. You, you know, you, you waited long enough for him. You'd hope that Sancho and Rashford are the wide players with Bruno behind the show pony. Um, West Ham, I expected to do bits in this window. I thought they needed to bring in probably two players, one up front and one at centre-back. And in the end, they didn't do anything. There's a couple of deals that happened that I wonder why they weren't in on. But I, I think they might have left themselves a bit short there. If their, I, or their ambition was to get Champions League, this was their opportunity and they've missed it. Yeah, I, I think so. I to add to that. And and the nonsense surrounding I, the idea that they could buy Rafinha or Calvin Phillips, with the greatest respect, neither of those boys are going to go there. 
Um, I, I, I will say, I applaud the attempt. Oh, I, I like to, the ambition to, of it. Yeah, you've got to absolutely try and stretch. And, you know, if, if other teams were not in a position to actually make the bid right now, then you never know. Maybe they would have come out with, with one of those players. But I think if they had a, had a let's say, 60-65 bid accepted, you would have seen a rush of other Champions League sides. Yeah. But even so, I think a nine, even if they could only get somebody on loan, I mean, even like a Bernie sign for Veghorst, if they'd have got that deal done... That's not the worst one. That's not the most expensive one for them. I think that they should have been looking to do something very, very, at least short-term loan for for a number nine, just to give them that extra uh, firepower or the cover for Antonio, whatever it is, because this they're not going to get another opportunity like this again. No, no, I don't think they are. Um, Arsenal spent months pricking around, thinking they might get Vlahovic, who had no interest in playing for Arteta. In the end, they did nothing. The Arthur Mello deal fell through. They did loan out a bunch of players. They, you know, terminated some contracts and they managed to shift Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang on a permanent deal to Barcelona. Um, talk to me about him for Barcelona. Let's just switch gears for a quick second. Barcelona bringing in Aubameyang and Adama Traore is maybe the most surprising combination of deals anyone has done this window. And Ferran Torres earlier in the window. And Ferran um, Torres, of course. Yeah, but, yeah. He, but him, I could see them signing. Him, I understood. I do wonder if the Adama thing, if they've played Wolves a little bit with the, oh, no, we'll we'll do an option to buy. And the only reason they really want him is because Ansu Fati could be out for a little while and they just want someone to get them through the end of the season. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, there's obviously the the homegrown aspect as well. Um, if he does do well, the the fans of in Spain they absolutely love Adama. He's so different to anything that they've ever had. They absolutely love Adama Traore playing for for the national team. Barca fans in general were overwhelmed by the thought of getting another La Masia graduate back, and you know, in the same vein as Alba and Pique and a couple of the others who have come back later on. Um, so I think that they're really happy with that option. Like you say, with Ansu maybe needing to undergo surgery, he doesn't want to at the minute, but he might he might have to in the end. And I think just to not have to rely on so many young players, they've had like Nico and Gabi playing basically every week all throughout the season. Pedri has had really bad injury issues to, to overcome after his overuse, to be blunt, last season. Um, uh, Jutkla up front as well has, has been another one they've kind of relied on coming out of absolutely nowhere. So I can understand from the perspective of additional options for them because it's it's on basically to get the top four. Uh, they 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 really have given themselves a decent chance, not by playing completely well, but there's definite improvement in the side. There is a slow improvement in in control of matches. There's not always the quality that they've needed. So I think that this is, again, just attacking options, similar to, like we said about Diaz, you know, if they weren't able to get the absolute deals that they wanted for the long term, for four and five years other than Ferran, well, maybe one extra sub-option off the bench, a real impact player like Adama, could prove the difference. And Aubameyang, um, other than the fact that they got him to take a massive, massive reduction in salary, I don't understand loads of it, again, other than the fact that this is a focal point forward that they have habitually done. And this is going back years. This is a Barcelona thing. Halfway through the season, you get in a number nine who is capable of scoring goals, who's not going to cost you the earth. Um, you think back to, they brought in Guerra one time, who was a left winger with Bilbao. They brought him in to play up front. They brought in Henrik Larsson to do a similar sort of job. 
Uh, I think Johnson was another one they brought in to just basically be an extra really experienced goal scoring forward from time to time. This is something that as a as a club culture, this is something that they, they really look at to boost them halfway through the season and maybe get them over the line towards their objectives, which this year are a little bit lower. Uh, one really curious and I have to put the label on it of dumb thing that they did was offer Usman Dembele a new long-term contract, barely on reduced salary. It worked out to about 280000 a week for an extra four years, given what he's done so far and what they've done between them so far. I think that that was a bad, bad option, but probably partly to do with preserving his transfer value rather than losing him for free in the summer, which now looks like it'll be the case since he turned down moves away and a renewal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I can see the logic in the... I think, from what I can make out, he his contract with Arsenal has been terminated. Arsenal have agreed yeah. to pay part of his salary until the end of this season and he's basically waived his rights to the contract after that and then he's Barca will pay him a largely reduced salary across the time they have him. It does speak volumes of how desperate he was to get away from Arsenal as well because he had other options and I'm sure he could have gone elsewhere if he wanted to but you know it, it he's made this move. I think doesn't he have family in Barcelona as well as mother there or something so you know, all things considered, it works out well for him. But Arsenal had a weird window. So that's Kalasinic, Chambers and Aubameyang gone permanently. Now, none of them offer much to them, but that's three members of their senior squad gone. Aubameyang also... was captain until seven weeks ago. Yes, he that's was. The big, that's the big drop thing here. That is the thing. That That is exactly it. He was their captain. And he went to see his mum. And he was late coming back, and then shit hit the fan. And you you have to assume something else has happened between him and Arteta that's caused this fallout. But what Arsenal have really done here is they've gotten rid of him. They've gotten rid of the other two boys. Maitland-Niles has gone on loan. Balogun has gone on loan. Pablo Mari has gone on loan. And all of a sudden you look at their squad, and it's very, very small now. And not only that, but the only two forward options, like number nine options that they now have, are Alex Lacazette and Eddie Nketiah, both of whom are out of contract this summer. Now, I know Gabriel Martinelli could play through the middle, but I don't think it's the best use of him. Nicolas Pepe has played there before. It's not the best use of him. They're going to be relying on Lacazette and Nketiah to get them their goals between now and the end of the season. Alex Lacazette has three Premier League goals this season. Eddie Nketiah has none. I think they've screwed themselves. Like, for as as much of a headache as Aubameyang might have been, surely you just reintegrate him until the end of the season and you say, look, we'll we'll figure this out at the end of the season. Maybe we can come to a deal where we tear up your contract and you can go wherever you want. But let's just put this all to one side until the end of the season. They want fourth. You're not getting fourth if Lacazette and Nketiah are your front two options. Now, I've always said they're Fugazi and I think they'll finish seventh. But still, they've they've done themselves harm here. Flutering about trying to get Vlahovic, who was never coming sniffing around Alexander Isak, who uh, Real Sociedad were never going to sell for below his his buyout clause in January. Like, this is a very stupid club. 
<laughs> has been this way for a while, to be fair. This shouldn't be a, a big surprise. Um, I, I, I actually have absolutely no issue with them offloading Aubameyang at this point. I'm more of the team build and mindset that if the, someone's not in your plans and they are causing a bit of a problem, and this is not a first thing for Aubameyang. He's been dropped and disciplined from, from club matches before for for uh, misdemeanors, as they class them. He got dropped for the, the North London derby last time for overstepping and being late for meetings, that sort of thing. So this is obviously just one too many for Arteta to, to bother bringing back in hand and dealing with. And I think that that's fine. Do what deal you need to do to get him off the books. Uh, I don't have a problem with that, even if it is at the expense of not having that extra one in the squad. Now, Arsenal do have a couple of um, younger forwards who are very, very highly rated. I'm not going to discuss them because I don't really watch them myself. This is just what other people have, have told me about them who, who follow the Arsenal on uh, 23s, 18s. But I do think that they have, barring injury to Lacazette, I think that they've probably got enough to muddle through and rely on their supply line behind them. I mean, we we both speak, spoken quite a lot about the Martinelli, Smith Rowe, uh, Saka, and Odegaard options that they have there. You can absolutely find a way to win against the dross by using those players and just one of the guys up front, or playing both of them in Ketia and Lacazette. Because I, I really like Lacazette dropping in. He's been playing a much deeper role for Arsenal across most of this season. I think he, he facilitates their attack quite well. Um, I think that they can probably do enough for a top six finish. By that, I don't think Arsenal get top four anyway. And to be brutally honest, I don't think Arteta thinks that they get top four either. I know that they're only a couple of points off. They have a game in hand and all the rest of it. But where Spurs are, what Spurs have in charge of them in terms of Conte and, and the up until, obviously, they played uh, Chelsea just before the international break, the unbeaten run that they were on, I don't really think that Arsenal expect to finish above Tottenham this season. And I don't think that Arsenal thought that unless they could get in the big, big number nine, it was worth getting a forward because it's not going to make a difference to them getting fourth. And I'm not going to say anything of that publicly, obviously, but I think judging on you know number of goals that all the teams have scored this season, the way that they play, the, the recent form that all those teams have had, I think Arsenal might finish above West Ham. And West Ham are the team who sort of drop off as other teams improve uh, towards the final stretch. But I don't think Arsenal have got much of a chance of a top four. So in those terms, getting rid of Aubameyang, I think is a win. If you think about how long it's stretched on with Mesut Ozil, for example. So not having to pay all of that money and getting them off the books a year and a half earlier than they might have done. One, it will show them that they cannot make the mistakes of two years ago, giving them that ridiculous contract. And the same with William. They've got a bit lucky, I think, getting rid of both of those as early as they have. Uh, and two, it, it allows them a real reset this summer. They they did a lot of business last summer, but they're going to have to really add quality and a couple of numbers net this coming summer as well. Mm. So that Without is Champions League money, will, will the yeah. owners back yet another big summer with no Champions League football? I, I, I don't know. I think this might have been, this might just have been their chance to nip in and grab fourth and try and re-establish themselves. Like you, like, they could well finish above West Ham, that's likely. Um, but United are a mess, and they could have taken advantage of that. Spurs, yeah, Conte's by far the best manager of that group, but Spurs have been dreadful this season, and sacked the manager after 10 games. For Arsenal not to be well ahead of them, having, you know, pronounced so loudly and with so much chest for months now that they're back, it... it it is a little bit of a, a climb down, you know. They weren't going to sign Vlahovic or Isak un, under, you know, anything less than a promise to the owners of we get this guy 
will get top four. Now, I, I just don't see them having any chance. Um, let's move to Spurs, and then we'll we'll do a couple more. Spurs had a weird window, Carl. I really like the players they've brought in. Do, uh, Dejan Kulisevsky and Rodrigo Bentinker. I think they both helped them and improved them. But the one thing I come out of with this window is what a damning indictment it is of their transfer policy over recent years. They turned down what was believed to be 80 million from United for Delhi a number of years ago. They paid 64 million, or no, 56 million, maybe for Endembele two and a half years ago. He's gone on loan. They paid 30 odd million for Lacelso. He's gone on loan. Last summer, they paid 21 million, rising to 30 odd for Brian Hill, and he's now gone on loan. This does not speak well of what they've done in recent years. And they've bought right backs in successive summers, and their big need for this summer was a right back. Um, it is not good at all. Their team building has been very, very poor. It's been below the rate that they've needed since they reached the Champions League final. And Pochettino basically told them, you know, we need a, a bit of a regeneration here. It didn't happen then, it didn't happen in the successive seasons. And uh, I think they're going to pay for that for at least a couple of years. But the big thing that they do have is two or three players who are far above the level of the team average, I would say, and a manager who is the same. And that, given other teams' uh, inconsistencies and stupidities, is probably enough to get them fourth at least once, if not in successive seasons. And that could be enough to then propel them back among the top three as well. Yeah, I agree. I do agree. I, I, I think when you look at their business from last summer, um, look, I think Emerson will prove to be a good player. He's just quite raw. Romero hasn't played a whole bunch because of injuries. Hill hasn't worked and, you know, maybe never comes back to England. He may well be one that, if they're keeping Kulisevsky, I don't know where Brian Hill fits. Um, it's just a bit of a strange one. And they didn't address the gaping needs they have at centre back. And then they, maybe that's because they've got. Eyes on somebody for the summer, I don't know. But the incomings are good. The outcomings reflect, or the outgoings rather, reflect really badly what they've done in recent years. Um, Wolves didn't do a whole bunch. Brighton didn't do a whole bunch. Leicester were quiet. Villa had quite a busy window. Um, the big one, obviously, being Callum Chambers in from Arsenal. But they also brought in Robin Olsen. Luca Dina from Everton and some Coutinho kid uh, from Barca who they think might have a chance of making it. What do you make of Steven Gerrard's first window as Aston Villa manager? He couldn't have picked a better club to go to, could he? <laughs> um, a club with big ambitions, a club which was on a down half of the season and a club with lots and lots of money and therefore not huge expectations on what they can achieve this season. It uh, gives him a bit of time to do the team building aspects. Obviously, he's made a good start on the pitch as well. I don't think an exceptional start, but a decent one, enough to move up the table, which is therefore seen as a wide positive. Mm. Um, Transfer-wise, I'm not really sure, other than obviously Coutinho with the connections and all that, how much individual input he's able to have, because they have quite a good structure there. They have quite a, a firm director of football with lots and lots of experience, very good work previously uh, over in Denmark. And he is someone who... 
I don't necessarily know who is going to be looking to a manager. Hey, you've been here two weeks. What do you think I should do with the left back, for example? I have to imagine that they have, like most play, uh, most places, a big list of teams and they'll a big list of players. Sorry, and they'll work through them and they'll pick the one which is best for them and they'll go ahead with it, maybe with a nod of approval from the manager. But I'm not sure how much we need to say that Jared has had a big impact on the actual window, other than let's say they rejected a couple of bids for Douglas Luiz. I think maybe the manager has had a big say in that. Uh, and saying that we want to try and renew him rather than sell him now. He's only got a year left on this deal, I think, at the end of the season. They haven't got Man City to worry about now, at least. The the option that City had for that deal has is, is passed, but they probably would want to renew him rather than offload him for probably, what, 20, 25 million come the end of the yeah. summer? Yeah, I think so. I think they will want to keep him. I think he's he's very good. I think he's part of what can be their future, and he's at a good age as well. Um, Saints had a quiet window. Palace made the Mateta deal permanent, which he's been better this season, but it's a little bit of a strange one because they looked at terminating it last summer. So, you know, I know they missed out on Donny. I think they were in for Delhi as well, trying to get him on loan once the Donny thing fell through. And again, I think he would have been better off going there than, than going to, to Everton. Uh, at least he wouldn't have had to move house. But, you know, um, a quiet enough window for Palace. I think they've done very well in their recruitment over the last, I suppose, 18 months. And uh, they're probably just keeping their powder dry. They obviously brought in that kid as well from Derby and they loaned him back. I can't think of his name. But, you know, they've kept quiet. They've kept their powder dry. They got Mateta for less than the agreed option to buy, which is good. And maybe it leaves them open to selling Benteke in the summer. Yeah, I think this is a steady continuation of what they've done so far, to be honest. This is just more building blocks in place for them. It's really good. Uh, moving on then, we have Brentford. They kept quiet. Sold Charlie Good, which I was a bit surprised about because he's played quite a bit this season for them with the injuries. Didn't address that right wing back spot, which has been problematic. Um, so maybe left themselves a bit short there. Uh, Leeds didn't do a whole bunch. We've talked about Everton. Norwich loan Todd can't. Sorry, were you going to say? Yeah, Christian Eriksen coming in for Brentford, obviously. Christian Eriksen, of course. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm I'm just happy to see him back. I hope he's okay to play. I really do hope he's okay to play because I've always enjoyed watching Christian Eriksen. So fingers crossed on him. Um. Norwich loaning out Todd Cantwell to a championship side is a little bit of an odd one. He was linked with moves away. One of the reasons he wanted to leave was because he fell out with the manager last summer, not the summer just gone, the summer previous, 2020, uh, because he didn't want to play in the championship anymore, and now he's back in the championship. But he should be a very good addition for Bournemouth. It's just a bit of a weird one for Norwich. Uh, I suspect that Norwich are just glad to be rid of him, to be honest. He's been an abomination this season. The lack of effort on shows an embarrassment, and it's no wonder that successive managers have not seen him for all his technical talents as a realistic and viable starting option. And a similar indictment of his approach to the last at least 12 months, but a lot more than that if you speak to Norwich fans, um, that no Premier League club wanted to even take a 10 million punt on him. Mm. Um, Let's work up. Upwards in the bottom three. Burnley lost Chris Wood. 
but got Veghorst for half the fee. And I think that is an upgrade. I think they've done well. They obviously didn't get the Orson deal across the line. And I was a little bit surprised they didn't look to bring in somebody else um, with when that one did fail. Potentially someone like a Cantwell. Um, but they're, they're pretty much stood pat otherwise. Uh, I do like the signing of Veghorst. I think him and Max Corey could be interesting together. Yeah, um, apparently, sort of uh, released just before we came on, actually, that Burnley had um, four options on the table and basically only got one of them done. Uh, the Orsic one, obviously, fallen through quite late on, made it difficult to restructure anything beyond that. But there is a fear that uh, money in the bank and the like-for-like striker, albeit I do think he'll be an upgrade in terms of goals scored across the rest of the season, will actually see them go down. Yeah, it, it's definitely... They've left themselves a lot to do. They're four points from safety, but they do have four games. And... So, you know, if they can if they can win one and draw one of those games, maybe it, it gives them a fighting chance. And if they're in a scrap, they're the one I would back in a scrap over the others in the bottom five. Like, if it comes down to needing a point in a big game... I would have more faith in them than I would in Watford, in Newcastle, in Norwich, or in Everton, who, like I said earlier, I do think we need to start talking about in this battle because they're only four points ahead of Newcastle. They do have a game in hand, but Newcastle have improved themselves, and I'm not really sure Everton have in the short term. I think in the long term, they'll have improved themselves at fullback in the aggregate of Patterson being better than... Coleman has been in the last couple of seasons, even if Michael Enko doesn't get to Dina's level. If one of Delhi or Donny works, then great. But if neither of them do, they're buggered. Um, uh, Burnley, I, I just think they're so tuned in to scrapping and survival. It's kind of the whole focus of the club that maybe it does give them a bit of an advantage. But Look, they have only won one game this season, so something's going to need to change. They're going to need to get more from Cornet. They're going to need Veghorst to hit the ground running. Dwight McNeil's going to have to find his best form, and they're going to have to just start grinding out results every single week. Told you at the start of the season. I'm not changing my mind now. Burnley are going down. No, I'm backing them to stay up. Um, Watford, Carl, their biggest change is Ranieri out and the return of Roy Hodgson to our lives, um, it's probably a smart move. You would, in a relegation battle, you would absolutely want Roy more than you'd want Ranieri. Yeah, definitely so. Um, we expect that you know he's going to do the usual. It's going to be six across the back with the right and <laughs> left side of midfielders. I'm not sure how. Ismail Asar and co are going to get on launching counter-attacks from 70 yards downfield, but we'll see. There might be quite a lot of nil-nils and one-nils coming up. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I do think so. I do think so. And then Newcastle. So, all we heard was they're going to spend a whole bunch of money, and they spent, I think, 15 million in total. No, they didn't spend 115 million in total because the Ekatiki deal fell through. I think they spent 85 million in total. But I don't really understand much of what they've done. Like, Kieran Trippier, going forward, is much better than 
than Mankio or Kraft, but he's worse defensively than either. But he does bring experience and he's a big name and I could see why they went for Matt targeting on loan at left back is a little bit of an odd one. I think Jamal Lewis is a better player than him. So I don't really understand that one. Chris Wood up front, 25 million for a guy who had, what, three or four goals this season? I like Chris Wood. I do. I think he's a, he's a better player than he gets credit for. He's just not where I'd be spending 25 million. Dan Byrne, like I said earlier, has played about 15 games as a Premier League centre-back. And for my money, isn't very good. I think Graham Potter's defensive system helps him massively. He's not getting that with Eddie Howe. Eddie Howe's not a pretty good defensive manager. They were in for... I, I don't know how you go from Ben Botman to Diego Carlos to Dan Byrne. That's just a really weird path to follow. The one it that saves it, It's not a path, no. It's, it's throwing shit at a wall and hoping something sticks, which is what their approach to the window has been. But the one deal that saves them... And the weird thing for me is Arsenal clearly wanted a midfielder all summer, a progressive midfielder, or all, all window. They tried to get Arthur, they failed. Spurs wanted a progressive midfielder. Now they got Benton Kerr, who I like, but Bruno Gomeric is better than Benton Kerr. Bruno Gomeric is better than Arthur. I don't know why Arsenal and Spurs weren't in for him, especially Spurs who spent like a week and a half talking to Leon about Lo Celso and Endombele. I don't know why one of them didn't hijack this deal, because I, I would be willing to bet he would rather go and play for one of them than play for Newcastle. But Bruno Gomeric is a hell of a get for the turn. Yep, great signing. Um, that's the kind of one where they can actually build to progress the team for like three, four years to come, gradually moving up the table into you know a top half team and then a side fighting for European places he's one of those pieces you can build around who's already really good but doesn't have the massive reputation and name where you have to sign him on you know three billion pound wages with other players of a similar stature coming in alongside him Um, that's a good signing presuming they stay up so for the defense you kind of got two things here one is that Newcastle's defense was terrible like really really bad and now what they've got is three quarters of a new one so Personally, uh, I said this before the transfer window started, Fabian Scherer is the one who I'd be keeping for sure. And I, I think that he would do all right alongside Dan Byrne in terms of they are enormous giants who can repel everything aerial. The fullback situation, they wouldn't be the two that I would have gone for, but I think together could be okay. They've kind of gone the opposite direction where we spoke about them prior to January, where we said we would go for someone like Emil Kraft as the right-sided defender uh, much more holding position, Jamal Lewis on the left, able to get forward and then play some maximum on the right midfield. So you've still got that solidity behind him. They've kind of switched that now where, you, like you said, Trippi is going to be the one who's expected to get forward. Matt Target is much more of a defensive-minded, keep your position, solid, cross from deep, that sort of player on the left-hand side. So maybe the idea was to back up some maximum from the left where he has been playing already with that kind of uh, tilted slightly to the right defensive shape. So maybe it makes sense from that perspective, but you still need to get them in a line and defending well together. And putting three new players in a four-man defence and a new player in front of them in Bruno Gomes, which was absolutely needed. Their, their holding midfield situation was not good, let's say. 
Um, but that is a really, really difficult thing to just make work straight away. So whether we'll see all four of those players going straight in, Trippier's already in the team, obviously, but the other three going in straight away, I'm not really sure. That might be something where they have to just play one or two of them for the first couple of games until, you know, on the training pitch, it looks like they are really, really set up nicely because they don't have a lot of room for error, but they do at least now have given themselves a shot at changing things around. Do you think they stay up? Yeah, yes. I don't. I think they just about will. I think defensively they might actually have gotten worse. They might be easier to play against now. Gamers is great, but like he can't do everything in midfield all by himself. Ideally, you'd want him as one of two with a like a a dogged ball winner next to him, or as you play him as the left sided eight. I wonder with him as a six if if it's like if it's say Shelby and Jolington or Willock and Jolington or something like that. I just I don't know. Um, I, and that def- th- defense to me is going to be a train wreck. Yeah, I do wonder about the defense. I, I mean, even when they were signed Dan Byrne, I wonder whether he was going to try and go to a three because that's where Byrne looks best. Like, yeah, left side of a three, um, and then you've got Target outside. It maybe as a not as sure. A Should we describing as rampaging, maybe. No, but like a tucked-in kind of wing-back so that when Trippier pushes right back five becomes a back four. So Trippier, in when you have the ball, is almost more of a midfield player and you still have a back four. The issue is, I mean, I suppose Fabian Cher could play as the right-side centre-back in the three and shuttle across to right-back when you're in possession. And maybe that works. But, I mean, you're still then relying on one of Jamal Lachelle's or Kieran Clark, uh, both of whom have been tragically bad this season. So, it'll be weird. Right, give me your best signing of the window by a Premier League club and your worst. And by worst, you can pick either worst for the club, worst for the selling club, or worst for the individual player involved. It doesn't have to be a permanent deal, can be a loan. All right, I'm going to go for... I'm going to go for Christian Eriksen for the best one, just because that's a story. And obviously, if he does come back and play and, and do even half well, that's a, a really, really big thing, considering what the alternative might have been. If we just want who's going to have the biggest impact and upgrade, I'm going to say Veghorst. I think he will outscore Chris Wood 2-1 to one across the rest of the season. And for the worst, I'm going to say take your pick out of Nathan Patson, Vitaly Miklenko and Donny van der Beek. At least one of Everton's is going to be terrible. Um, I, uh, they don't all fit in the side. Not any side that is actually a reasonable shape anyway. And I can definitely see at least one of those looking like it was just a, you know, how it would be described with about three weeks left of the season. A panic buy, that mm. sort of thing. Uh, I, I don't think that there's too much to worry about with Newcastle's other than maybe Dan Byrne being a bit of an overpay. But again, you've got the fact that he wanted to go back home and all that kind of stuff. So even if they do go down, he's someone that they can play in the championship. So I don't think that that's a terrible buy anyway. Phil uh, Sevsky, I don't necessarily think it's going to be great for the rest of this season. I think it'll take a while for Conte to work out how to get the best out of him and what position he's going to play and all the rest of it. But longer term, obviously, I think he's a, a superb player. I think for value, I think Bentoncourt at 20 million is a really good buy for Tottenham. I think he'll upgrade them in midfield. But the problem is they're still going to probably have to play play, play 
one of Winks or Ollie Skip, who are fine players, and if you were Southampton or Brentford, they'd be good players to have. I just don't think they're players that you want in your team if you're going for top four. Um, I think Donny will work out to be the worst from from his point of view, because I think he's just going to move from one bench on to another. I I just think it's a a very very strange strange decision by him to move there and um i hope it works out because i do like him but i would if like i i if i had to pick one to work out i would prefer to see delhi get back to his previous level because i think if delhi fails at everton it's pretty much over for him i think donny because he's still so highly regarded on the continent united could still sell him in the summer and he can go on and have a really good career with Delhi, I I think the damage might might be done if if this doesn't work out, and he may end up just being one of those kind of. Do you remember how good he was when he was, you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty one, and then how poor he's been since. Delhi Ali encapsulates everything about Spurs in the last seven years: the unexpected rise to becoming an elite Premier League team and an elite Premier League player, the overperformance, and then the drastic decline, which started in the second half of the 18-19 season. As they made their run final, their league form fell off a cliff and his form fell off a cliff. And since then, it's been underperformance and disappointment game after game, week after week, month after month, to, you know, to now it's the new start. Spurs have Conte, he has Everton. I think he is basically Spurs' last seven, seven and a half years encapsulated in one player. I should add that over the longer term of this season, you know, 18 months and beyond, Luis Diaz is the best signing. I think so. I, I genuinely do think so. I think the only one who could... Well, there's two that could rival him. Kulisevsky, if he hits form... Now, like you, I think it could take a little while. But he has the potential to be really special. And a front three of him, Kane and, and Youngman's son, could be very, very dangerous. And Bruno Gomerish could potentially, if Toon stay up, and if they go in the summer and just say, you know what, fuck all the FFP rules, we're going completely buck wild this season and we're spending 300 million. He could be the foundational piece of something special that they build there. Um, but I, I, I think they'll go down. We'll leave it there. We've gone long, but this was our first one on Discord. So, you know, I thought it was worth going a bit longer uh, with the live audience. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Carl, anything you want to plug before we go? I'm going to pick up a new kettle this afternoon. You've burnt out the other one with all those cups of tea, haven't you? That's what's happened. You've just burnt the thing out. You should get one of those Wi-Fi ones that Guy has. You know, you can program it to go on at different times. I don't get paid the big bucks like Guy. Well, that's true enough. That's true enough. Um, Drinkle's just raking in the money. We'll leave it there, folks. Follow Carl on Twitter, at Carl Matchett. You can read his work on The Independent. And this is Anfield. Follow Guy at Guy Drinkle. Thank you to Mr. Drinkle for producing this as always. And follow me on Twitter at EPL Index. And listen to the Two-Footed Pod every day at 4pm. 
and the Daily Red every day around lunchtime. Two for the pod will probably be a little bit late today, but it is what it is. See you later. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.